1: I'm Alison Camerota, welcome to CNN Tonight. Why was Donald Trump's staff moving boxes of documents around Mar-a-Lago when they knew that the FBI was coming the following day to look for classified documents? The Washington Post reports that investigators consider the timing here a potential sign of obstruction. So what happens now? Our panel tells us what this means for the investigation. Plus, that 11-year-old Mississippi boy called 911 for help during a domestic disturbance, but when police arrived, as you heard, they shot him. So we'll give you new developments in this case. And Mike Rowe is here tonight to talk about why college enrollment is at its lowest point in years. But let's begin with The Washington Post reporting on two Trump employees allegedly moving boxes of papers at Mar-a-Lago just one day before FBI agents traveled there to pick up classified documents. And that's not all. The Post reports that investigators also have evidence that the former president, kept classified documents out in the open in his office and showed them to others. We're going to bring in my panel. We have Errol Lewis, political anchor for Spectrum News. Also, Rachel Nichols of Headliners with Rachel Nichols on Showtime. Republican strategist Jason Osborne and CNN political commentator S.E. Cup. But here first to help us break this down legally is our CNN chief legal analyst, Laura Coates. Laura, great to see you. Um, So tell me, what does all of of these new developments, what are the legal implications here for Donald Trump?
2: Wow, Allison. I mean, just think about it. One of the hardest things to do as a prosecutor is to figure out how I'm going to get inside of the brain of a potential target. How do I figure out that person's intent? How do I figure out what they really wanted to do? And then you have this reporting that suggests that not just that the documents were retained or that they were moved, But the possibility of even a dress rehearsal to figure out what to do when the National Archives came to get the documents or a duly executed subpoena was actually issued and then fulfilled it really does not bode well for an intended defendant or target to have this type of information out there because it really confirms the possibility that you do have intent, the intentional act to try to obstruct a lawful investigation. And remember, this is all falling under the Presidential Records Act, Allison. As you well know, these documents don't belong to the former president, Donald Trump. He had advanced notice that they did not. Even if it was an inadvertent retention of documents, he was certainly for months on notice that he was no longer supposed to have them. So reporting that suggests that there was a plan in place in addition to his own attorney having had to testify in front of a grand jury, Allison, and the attorney-client privilege being pierced and under the crime fraud exception, this does not bode well for Donald Trump to try to prove that he did not have the level of intent that a prosecutor needs to show. So if this
1: reporting bears out, and we've heard bits and pieces of this before, and Jack Smith, the special counsel, has evidence of this, does Merrick Garland charge Donald Trump?
2: Well, remember, he is not the first one to make the call. It would be the person that he has given and delegated the responsibility to, Jack Smith, in part because of the political implications here. Obviously, Donald Trump is the presumed front runner in the GOP primary. He's a former president. He has made no small news about the idea that he believes all of this is a perpetual witch hunt. And so there is a distant 10-foot pole that Merrick Garland wants to have between himself for obvious reasons, a political appointee, the head of the executive branch, under the pleasure of President Biden, the chief rival of the GOP primary lead, and of course, what's happening in this investigation. But if Jack Smith, who has had the delegated authority to make the decision, makes that determination, it really binds Merrick Garland as the AG to make a decision based on what the evidence shows under the special counsel whose job it is to look at this. And so it is very likely in a case where there's not a whole lot of ambiguity, unlike some other cases that might be brewing, if there's zero ambiguity and the evidence is there, Merrick Garland will likely have to follow the guidance of Jack Smith, whatever it might be.
1: Okay. And the two staffers who reportedly moved
2: these boxes of documents, are they in trouble? could be i mean we've never seen i haven't seen a photograph or if you have of Donald Trump actually carrying boxes anywhere i haven't seen him carrying the documents or to have some indication that he himself was alone in this if he delegated responsibility to somebody else if that person was involved in this then there is the potential liability and potential prosecution however Think about, there might be people who are voluntarily or actively cooperating to give the information, to convey that there is likely, that there was a dress rehearsal or otherwise. And I point again to Evan Corcoran. Remember, he was the attorney for Donald Trump. He tried to suggest he could not tell what may have been instructed to him or otherwise because of, obviously, the attorney client privilege. We want any client to be able to be full, um, uh, full uh, forthright and to be candid with their counsel to get legal advice. And we will shield those communications, Allison, except if there is a crime or fraud afoot. And yes, I said afoot on a Thursday night at 10 o'clock p.m. But really, if there was a crime afoot and fraud happening, we don't want to protect that. We don't want to use a shield of an attorney to further a crime. And so a judge has already said, you're going to have to testify about what you may have been instructed to in front of a grand jury. And so he apparently had very detailed notes, whatever it was in, in, contained in that secret grand jury proceeding will give us more insight as to who else might be liable or at least potentially coming to prosecution.
1: It sounds like something's afoot, maybe even two feet. So, thank you very much. <laughs> I knew you were going to say it. I knew
2: it, Alison. I knew you were going to say it. I knew that you
1: knew that I was going to say something cheesy right there. Uh, Laura? I was right there with you. Yeah. Fantastic. Great to see you. Thank you very much for all of that. Okay. Let's May go, see you too. Let's <laughs> go back to the panel. Errol, the idea that the boxes were moved after they knew the FBI was coming, okay? They knew that they were being subpoenaed for this. And furthermore, that he kept some of these, I mean, obviously they have evidence or they have sources that say that he kept some of these documents in the open and showed them to people. You'll remember in the CNN town hall that he was asked about this by Caitlin Collins, and his answer was a little um, peculiar. So let me just play that for everyone. When it comes to your documents, did you ever show those classified documents to anyone?
3: Not really. I would have the right to. By the way, they were declassified not really? after.
4: Not, uh, not that I can think of. Mm. Ah, that sounds like the kind of thing you say under oath. Um, this is uh, Donald Trump during that town hall and in other settings has been trying out every defense that, you know, comes to mind. I can automatically do it just by an act of my mind. Um, I, I, I didn't really show it to anybody. Not really. I don't remember. But I could if I wanted to. But I could if I wanted to. Right. Um, He he often has this habit of doing things in the open um, and trying to inoculate those actions by saying, clearly I wasn't trying to deceive anybody. I just laid it out there and everybody could see the boxes. That was something else he said during the town hall. Everybody saw the boxes. What are you talking about? I'm not trying to do anything uh, that's (laughs) uh, uh, improper or illegal. So uh, the problem for him, of course, is that that doesn't really comport with the law. When the... National Archives comes and asks, or when a subpoena is executed and the Justice Department shows up, you are supposed to cooperate. And the non-cooperation itself gives rise to an offense. So that even if everything he said was true, if he thought he could magically, mentally declassify things, once the DOJ comes and says, we have a subpoena, you have to give this stuff back, and you don't do it, or you have a rehearsal uh, to sort of pretend that you're going to do it you get into a lot of trouble. And I think he's heading for a lot of legal trouble.
5: Rachel? Look, the obstruction is one thing. And by the way, news at 11, Donald Trump does not have respect for American laws or procedure. I mean, we already knew that. So can they prove obstruction? Can they prove intent with this new information? Maybe. Certainly looks like it from the outside. We'll have to see what the legal process bears out. To me, it's the showing people of these documents that really just sort of erupts red flags for me. We are talking about documents that have been reported as nuclear codes, national security about operations that even our top national operatives don't know about. That's how secure these overseas operations are. And he's just showing them. To business associates and friends, what? To feed his own ego so he can say how important he is? That, to me, is where the American electorate needs to really pay attention. Because it's not about the charges or, gee, is it this legal case or that legal case? He is being reckless with American lives. That's just the bottom line. Whether he thought he was allowed to or not, you look at what's in front of you and you show people, and that's something that can get people killed. And -hmm. what happens if he gets back into office and he is that reckless on behalf of his ego, which, gee, it's just not a hard leap to think that that might happen again.
1: Um, Jason, uh, there's the process of it, which is, right. you know, why were these things being moved around? Why was he keeping them when he knew that the National Archives needed them? Why was he maybe showing them to them? And then, as Rachel was alluding to, what's on the, what are these documents? Why did he want to keep them? Uh, you know, Donald Trump prides himself, obviously, on being a great dealmaker— did he want to make a deal with them? What was he doing with these?
6: Well, first off, when this story came out, the first thing I could think of was like, what does a dress rehearsal look like of taking boxes at Mar-a-Lago? Like, who's officiating this? And it
7: looks like obstruction.
6: No, but I mean, even just from the more comedy side of it, it's like, what do what what they have are like? Yeah, no, just like who's at? like, okay, we're going to practice moving this box from this room to this room. <laughs> Let's see what it looks like, right? Can you move faster? Can you? Not, uh, but in terms of your question and your point, it's like I. I have no idea what these documents could be. I know what we've heard is that they could be codes. I have to think that there were some pretty smart people that came in 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 the new administration were like, we're changing everything so that no matter what was on these documents, it is no longer valid. I also think it's kind of stupid, quite frankly, on on Trump's part to say, no, these documents were declassified and there's nothing big deal about it. National Archives knows what those documents are because he never created anything himself. Somebody, and that's not just him, it's any president or any elected official. Somebody <laughs> else creates the document and gives it to them. Yeah, so, that's
1: how they knew he still had boxes of them because right. they have a list that mm-hmm. were missing. So, yeah, they are. I think they are aware even more so than we are of what exactly it was.
6: And I'm not convinced quite, or just the last point, I'm not convinced that the documents are going to be what Jack Smith ends up Focusing on, I think there's other stuff because keep in mind, Such the independent as? council can actually look at other things,
3: yeah, like
1: what
6: um i from what I understand that there's been folks that have been talked to from d h s and from d o d about things that happen after the election. I don't know what they are, and obviously nobody's going to tell someone like me, but I think the investigation is more than just the classic. well,
1: he documents. is also looking into the january sixth the the seeds of the right. Um, election interference, et cetera, et cetera.
7: Go ahead. Well, I mean, it's not hard to imagine Donald Trump collecting these things as like trinkets and trophies, right? I mean, that feels very in his um, persona. But what I think is really interesting here is whether or not there will be political implications from this, right? Like in on Earth 1 this would be bad for someone running for president, right? Well, I seem to recall that Hillary Clinton <laughs> yes, it was, was occasionally... Disqualifying it for her.
1: Was, Lock her up. Well, yeah. I mean, he. It, it was Donald Trump who was so yeah. outraged that she might have had classified documents on her home server. Yes. And he brought it up all
4: the
7: time. And listen, that was
4: bad. That was bad.
1: Uh, yes, and you right. know what he said uh-huh. about it at the time? Do we have what Donald Trump said about... Okay, listen to this, just to remind you, Essie.
4: We can have someone... In the Oval Office, who doesn't understand the meaning of the word
7: "confidential" or "classified"? There you have There's it. There's a video for everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what's interesting is this should be disqualifying, of course, in today's Republican Party on Earth too, It is a windfall, and I think it is wild to me. Ron DeSantis today, today, um, said he'd consider pardoning. Donald Trump. Because of all the FBI, deep state, coming to getcha, witch hunt stuff. Don- Ron DeSantis wants to beat Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis wants Donald Trump to be disqualified so that Ron DeSantis can win. And yet you can't say what is obvious to a five-year-old in this Republican primary and this earth to Republican party. It's wild. Thank you for giving us the report from Earth, because
1: sometimes we do sometimes we do need that reality check. Thank you all very much. All right, now to this. An eleven-year-old boy calls 911 for help when his mother fears for her safety, and he's shot in the chest by a police officer. Now the family is calling for that officer to be fired. We have more on the investigation. Next. An 11-year-old boy called police for help and ended up getting shot by an officer. 11-year-old Adarian Murray called 911 in the middle of the night because of a domestic disturbance at his home. But when police showed up, they accidentally shot Adarian in the chest. His mother describes the chaos. I walked towards the end of my driveway where my mom was, and
8: I heard a shot, and I saw my son run out towards the where we were. He ran from the inside of the house all the way out to where we were. And this when he felt bleeding, shot. And I put pressure on the, the I put pressure on it to stop, help stop the bleeding, it bleeding so much. I asked the cop, I thought what happened, you know, he told
2: me he shot my son, that he thought he didn't know he came around a corner. He, you know, there were no real explanations of what happened.
1: We're happy to say Adarian survived. We're told he's recovering from his injuries, but his mother is demanding that the responding officer, Greg Capers, be fired and charged. He is on paid leave as this investigation continues. We're back with the panel. We also have CNN chief law enforcement analyst, John Miller, with us. John, um, explain how something like this can happen.
9: Well, something like this can't happen, uh, but it did. So then you have to reach into what was going through the officer's mind when he pulled the trigger. And... We don't know enough about this. We're told it's on body camera, so we could possibly learn a lot more about it uh, once authorities kind of go through that footage, interview everybody who was on the scene, interview whatever other officers were on the scene. But I've investigated in New York and Los Angeles literally scores of police shootings um, from the outset. And when you look at a case like this, uh, his statement about Uh, The boy came around the corner quickly and, you know, I fired, has some of the earmarks of an accidental discharge. And that's why I have to get into what was in the officer's mind, because when the 911 call was given to them, did they say, "Okay, my ex-husband's here. It's four o'clock in the morning. He says, let's let's get everybody out of the house into the driveway. Let's clear the house. And he's startled and fires that shot. I've seen that before. It's where you're not supposed to have your finger in the trigger guard, and you flinch out of fear, and a shot goes off. You didn't intend to fire. Either way, uh, the question is going to be, can you know? What is the officer's statement? What does the body camera show? And frankly, can he go on being a, a police officer? He's. He's been in the U.S. military. He's been a police officer there for a while. He has another incident with the same lawyer. I was going to ask about
1: that. So do we know about his background? Does he have some bad judgment in his past? Do you know?
9: So that other incident, um, it's not clear whether that resulted in discipline or not. Uh, But the lawyer says he had a client who was tased while handcuffed. Um, So you're going to have to do the entire 360-degree look at this officer's career. But... Um, the shooting of an 11-year-old boy, you see this child. There's no way to mistake him for the ex-husband or anybody else. Um, This is clearly an issue where there's going to be a question about... There's going to be two questions. One, does he have to be prosecuted? And that's going to be based on what the camera shows and what he says. But then the other is, can he go on being a police officer?
7: Well, this is a sad story all around. I have to assume this police officer didn't intentionally shoot a child. Um, I'm also really glad that this child's going to be okay physically, mentally, I'm sure not. Um, Look, I am a big supporter of law enforcement, but I don't support anything blindly. And there have been a not small number of these accidental discharges or accidental shootings. And I think it's something that really needs to be looked at as we're talking more about criminal justice reform, and police brutality. And I don't know that that fits in this category, but we're looking at a large category. Uh, This cannot happen. And stuff like this seems to happen too frequently. And that cannot be the collateral damage of law enforcement just doing the job. Cannot be.
1: Does it feel like... Officers, when something like this happens, Errol, does it feel to you like they're scared? They're just there's something about training that has gone wrong and they're scared.
4: There's something about training and systems that have, has gone wrong. You know, I mean, for example, if the 911 call came from an 11 year old somewhere in that system, that information should have been transmitted to the responding officer that there's an 11 year old who called that person is going to be there. And other know? children in the house. So that you're not, you're not there. And, that, and if you're scared and you're flinching, this is reminiscent of uh, the horrible case in 2014, uh, Tamir Rice in Cleveland, mm-hmm. where a 911 call goes in and says, there's a kid here, it's probably a play gun, but he's hanging around in this playground. The cops show up and something like three seconds later, they zoom up, they pop out of the car and they kill the child. And it turned out that the officer... was a little
10: kid. it was a really
4: little kid. And it turned out the officer had had a whole string of problems, had been, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of kicked off another force. And and it it raised a lot of systemic questions about how the 911 call was handled, the training of the responding officers. And then there's this other issue out there about, you know, do people who have bad disciplinary records, are they able to just move from department to department? Mm -hmm. So all of those kind of questions are going to be raised all over again. And, you know, of course, your heart has to go out. Those of us who have sons, you know, you spend so much time, everything from the day of birth to the vaccinations to, Mm -hmm. you know, you watch their little bodies growing and to have... Someone shot at at close range like that. It's just devastating.
1: Yeah. We've called, CNN has called this police department to try to get information. They haven't returned our calls. And this is, we've seen when police departments have done something really well and they have transparency and they open up their records to try to fix whatever the problem is. And then we've seen them when they don't.
5: Well, look, it's hard as a citizen, as a parent, to think there could be any reason that this officer would shoot this child. It's hard to imagine. But if you have one, Tell me what it is. And every day that body cam footage doesn't come out and it's been multiple days, that tells me you have no reason. And by the way, being scared, he came around a corner, not a reason to shoot someone. I I think we've gotten so off topic here sometimes when talking about shootings, the incident that happened here on the New York subway, someone was being threatening. Okay, that's not a capital offense. So I'm scared by a little boy, a four foot ten boy coming around a corner. That's not an excuse. That's not okay. If it was two regular people, someone came around a corner at me, so I shot them. We wouldn't let that stand. That person would go to jail. The threshold for a police officer has to be higher, not lower, than for a regular citizen. And by the way, he knew that there were. the report came in that there were children in the house. That was part of the disturbance. And if you are a police officer responding to that situation, you are supposed to be trained for the nuance that you were trying to get the assailant and not the victims. It doesn't seem so difficult to me. And it's just mysterious that this has dragged on for as many days it ha- as it has. I felt awful for this poor family.
1: All right. Thank you all very much for all of those perspectives. Now to this. College enrollment is down by a million students. So what is behind that? Uh, is it the pandemic? Is it the expense? Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs has a lot of thoughts on this Next. If you have a kid going to college in September, this story will come as a shock to you. There are nearly one million fewer students enrolled in American colleges than there were just in 2019. According to a new report, the number of undergraduates at nonprofit four-year institutions continues to slide down. So what's the explanation? Well, Mike Rowe, the man behind Dirty Jobs and the CEO of the Mike Rowe Works Foundation, is here to tell us. Mike, great to see you. Um, Mike, as a parent mm-hmm. with two seniors who are going off to college in September, it felt as competitive as ever. I was stunned to hear that there are a million fewer uh, kids enrolling than there were pre-pandemic levels. So what do you think is going on?
10: Well, uh, selfishly, I hope that the drum we've been beating for the last 15 years over at Microworks uh, might be having some impact. I'm not affirmatively trying to dissuade people from considering a college education. I've been, on the other hand, trying to get people to look at all of the options that are available and be really, really honest about the cost. Never. Has anything in the history of Western civilization gotten more expensive more quickly than a four-year degree in the last 30 years? It's, it's exponential. You know, it's, it's, it's increased faster than, than food, energy, uh, real estate, health care, really everything. And so it's got a long tail, this thing. But I think the numbers have finally caught up with a lot of households who have simply said, look, if we can get our kid in a trade school and have him or her... Uh, learn a skill that's actually in demand and get out with very little debt, that kid's going to have a colossal head start in the workforce. And that's just the data. And that's just the facts. And I'd be lying if I said I was not just a little gratified to see the headlines catch up with my own smack.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, when I read this, I thought, Oh, my gosh, the world has caught up with micro, with what you've been telling us for years. But do you think this is was this brought on by the pandemic or do you really think it's just the sticker shock finally uh, being prohibitive for so many families?
10: Yes, yes. And probably a bunch more things, too. This thing is. It's like nailing jello to a tree, you know. I mean, it's 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 very difficult to pin down exactly what the underlying problem is and what the overarching solution might be. Personally, I think we can walk it all the way back to that ridiculous day we pulled shop class out of high schools and started telling kids that the best path for the most people was the most expensive path. Since then, a lot of unintended consequences have have started to evolve and a lot of myths and misperceptions and stigmas and stereotypes around the trades have taken hold. I think what we're starting to see now is a slow realization that, no, wait, you actually can make six figures welding. You don't really have to go 150 grand in the hole to come out with a skill that makes you incredibly marketable. So the facts are starting to catch up. The evidence demands a verdict. Right. And the evidence is coming in.
1: And yet the, there is still evidence that a four year you know, traditional college degree will pay off more than just a high school um, graduation certificate. So here are the numbers. Lifetime earnings by educational attainment less than high. Well, let's go to high school. So high school diploma, one point six million lifetime earnings versus a bachelor's degree, two point eight million
10: hmm. Well, if it were as, if it were that binary, everybody would make a simple decision and we wouldn't be having this conversation. There wouldn't be one point seven trillion dollars in outstanding student loans. There wouldn't be literally millions of kids with degrees who can't find work in their chosen field. The thing that's not really on that chart. I mean, it alludes to it. But the number of people who start college and don't finish is colossal. And when those people drop out. They don't drop out with a clean slate. They drop out with a lot of debt and no degree to apply it toward. So, look, I macroeconomics is not my thing. Microworks is my thing. And the only thing I can really tell you with absolute definitiveness is that we've helped 1800 people master a skill that's in demand. And Allison, they're killing it. I mean, I I've come to the conclusion that I can I can tell an okay story but if we're trying to persuade a guidance counselor or a mom or a dad to give the trades an honest look, we need to hear from people who are prospering in their fields right now. Women in particular are killing it. We've got I don't even know the percentage of people in my foundation that we've assisted that are female has has exponentially jumped and jumped again. Like what we've kind got of jobs? we female, like, welders, yeah, yeah, female 80-
1: welders. Like tell us what kind of jobs you're helping them with.
10: So my favorite story is Chloe Hudson, who applied for a work ethic scholarship five years ago. She was this close to borrowing a few hundred grand to to become a plastic surgeon. She decided to weld instead. She wound up at Joe Gibbs. She's the lead welder there making mid six figures story after story after story welders don't look like the person you're imagining in your mind right now not every plumber is 300 pounds with a giant butt crack in a sitcom <laughs> right the, those are the stigmas I'm talking about those are the those are the perceptions and the misperceptions that a lot of well-intended parents have and look guidance counselors to this day in real time as we speak they're getting they're getting bonused based on their ability to help a kid get into a four-year school not into a trade school So again, it's not this is good and this is bad, or this is better and this is worse. But trade jobs are not vocational consolation prizes. And the path to a four year degree look, you can look at the numbers, but when you really get down and tell the individual stories, some will break your heart and some will inspire you. But in the end, work ethic still matters. And the willingness to master a skill that's in demand, maybe out of favor a little bit, but nevertheless in demand that will still get you to a place that looks a lot like prosperity.
1: Well, as I said, Mike, you've been singing this tune for a long time, and now there's a chorus of people <laughs> joining you. So always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for being on the program. See you soon.
10: Shameless plug, a million bucks coming up in a couple of months. We're going to give it away again for the next round. But Can't thank you wait. so much. For Can't
1: wait to on. hear about it. All right. Have you heard of this so-called miracle drug, Ozempic? It helps people lose weight, but it turns out it might also help with a whole bunch of other things. We're going to discuss that next. What is the deal with Ozempic? Why do people consider it a miracle drug for weight loss and maybe even other things? I'm back with my panel and CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell joins us now. So, Meg, what? how does it work? How does Ozempic work? Does it just suppress your appetite or is there something else magical happening?
11: Well, so there's nothing magical that's happening, but essentially it goes after a target that's known as GLP-1. And it works really well. It does end up suppressing your appetite. It has to do with insulin. Uh, some people think it can s- slow the emptying of your stomach. Stomach, uh, so that you feel full for longer. And what they have found is, is that with Ozempic and then a drug called Wagovi, which is the same drug, but just in a higher dose, which is actually approved for weight loss, they've seen 15% weight loss in clinical trials with these medicines. There's another one called Mounjaro, which is a different uh, drug called terzepatide. And in trials for type 2 diabetes and for obesity, they've seen 22% weight loss. Over the space of how long? Um, 72 weeks, so a little bit more than, you know, a year and some.
1: Okay, that's interesting, because Jason, you were telling me, you did OZEPIC for two months? Two months. And did you lose weight?
6: I did. How much? Within the first three weeks, I think I lost like 10 pounds, right? And then they kind of stalled for a little while. Um,
1: And was it easy? Were there side effects?
6: I didn't have any side effects, I mean, necessarily. I mean, to her point about the emptying of the stomach, without getting too graphic, I think there were some (laughs) things that just didn't empty as Normally, they did before. <laughs>
1: okay.
5: That uh, is the
6: nicest
1: right? way I've heard of it That's
5: being.
6: Right. Right. <laughs> right.
1: Let's discuss that on YouTube television. <laughs> but, exactly. but overall, you were happy with the results, were you? No, I was, was happy,
6: that? and I wouldn't necessarily say it suppressed my appetite, right? It was just I felt fuller when I was eating, right? Okay, so, and then
1: why did you go off it?
6: Uh, because insurance didn't cover it mm. for me. Now, I have a, my family has a history of diabetes, and so I was pre diabetic, still am, I think. Um, and they wouldn't cover it. And so I had to pay out of pocket for it. And I just, I, I didn't want to pay anymore. Now, if they keep adding things that it's going to stop doing, like I told you earlier, if it gets my hair back and fuller, <laughs> then I'm back on it. I mean, I'll... Well,
1: that's funny because now they are finding that there are other additional benefits of it. For instance, is it helping with
11: various addictions so this is something that people have sort of noticed as they've been taking the drug, and it is being tested formally in clinical trials right now. So we can't say, absolutely, if you take this, you're not going to you know, have your addictive behaviors anymore. But one of the things that doctors have told me they've noticed mostly in patients is people lose interest in drinking. So that's one thing in particular. But there is also just a story in The Atlantic which detailed people stop nail biting. Maybe they don't do compulsive shopping quite as much. And so scientists are trying to understand what it is about these medicines, what they're doing could potentially be causing this. Uh, and then, you know, maybe could this be a drug for that as well?
1: I'm um, Rachel, you live in LA. You have some experience hearing about this drug? Yeah,
5: it's amazing. I've never done it, but I would say 25, because Essie and I were talking in yeah. the break, I would say 25% of the people who I run into have had some sort of weight loss. And you say, oh, you look great. And they say, oh, Or they say, Magiorno. And and it's become one of these things where in certain places, it's just accepted. It's not even being whispered anymore. The expense is obviously an issue. It's about $1,000 a month. And I think this is yet another case where rich people in this country have access to better health care than people who are not able to afford that kind of thing. And, and yet you see obesity in this country. Two in five adults are considered obese. One in five children are considered obese. We know about all of the secondary conditions that come with obesity. You talk about being pre-diabetic. So... There's a little bit of this sort of push and pull in American society of you shouldn't need a drug, right? You shouldn't need a cheat. You should be able to have the willpower. You should be able to stop eating without a drug making you feel like you're more full. Well, the bottom line is it's not happening. Portions in this country are four times the size that they are in Europe. And if we have something that can help people take better care of themselves and stop those secondary conditions, I think people have to take a serious look at it. It's not just a vanity thing.
1: And, Essie, when you see people and they've lost... uh, dramatic or yeah. significant amount of weight, do they look better? Because I've also heard there's something called ozempic face.
7: Yeah. Well, listen, you're not supposed to lose weight that quickly, and when you do, you can get a lot of sagging, and that can happen in your face. It can happen elsewhere, too. I've seen some people I know have to deal with a lot of extra skin because you're supposed to lose weight more slowly. But yeah, I know a lot of people on this, especially in television, Um, and reality television, a lot of people are on it. They're not whispering about it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of people who need this drug and then a lot of people who just want this drug. Mm -hmm. And I worry from a place, having come from uh, a childhood with eating disorders and all of that, I worry, it's sort of reawakening this culture of thin that we had really tried to eradicate for many, many years. You know, restoring healthy body image, body positivity. And now you're seeing, like, thin as back in. I just worry that this is going to creep down to teenage girls who watch these reality stars and, you know, um, who want the, the the magic pill, the magic drug to make them as thin as their mom is now. Or as thin <laughs> as, right, their favorite TV star is. So, I you know, I just worry about that side of it. I'm, I'm glad it's helping a lot of people, but there's another side to Do it. Do you worry about that, Meg?
11: Oh, yeah. I think there are people who think that all of the discussion that's happening around this really could trigger, you know, eating disorder-type behaviors. And and I think there is a lot of concern that that could be very problematic. And you have seen a real shift that people are now talking about this, like how great it is that I'm not hungry, that I never eat, that I have the appetite of a toddler, I think was one Mm. phrase in one big story about these medicines. And so there is concern about when people are using this when it's not indicated. Well, and you have people like Gwyneth Paltrow and
7: and Hilary Duff talking about, their starvation diets, and that's not even with pills. Then you think, well, this is a pill. It's approved. This must be okay and good for me. Um, I would hope it's not being um, given to kids, right? But, you know, it's not hard to get your hands on stuff these days. So I just hope there's also, like, an educational aspect to this as it's growing in need and popularity. Yeah, really interesting. interesting. Thank you very much for the Thanks expertise. It's great to talk to you.
1: All right, the age-old question... Crushed ice or cubed ice? What about nugget ice? What is that anyway? Scam. It's something. It's a, is it a scam or is it something that Starbucks is switching to and it has the internet in tizzy? We're going to talk about the ice wars coming up.
6: It is not a scam. Not <laughs> ice.
1: Americans have strong feelings about ice. And thanks to Starbucks, those feelings are on display. Starbucks announced they're changing the ice they use in their drinks. They're going from chipped ice to quote, nugget ice. And people are losing their minds. I'm back with Jason Osborne and Rachel Nichols. Okay. All right. So this is chipped ice. Yes. Right? Which looks like little it's a cubes. These are little cubes, but they're little like squares. squares. Right. And then nugget ice. It's just smaller, like crushed ice.
5: It's like the soft kind of you can kind of you know chew on it, or it's more chewy. You can yes, very, yeah. Mm-hmm.
6: It's more like a right? pellet. It's not more chewy. Yeah.
5: It's just crushed ice. Yeah, but you can you can. And it's, it's not as
6: loud though as this.
1: It's this softer. is louder.
6: Yeah, ice? try and try and bite down on that, and then it sounds <laughs> like you're going to break a tooth. This should have been. In everybody's kitchen from the get-go. Yes. Like this right here? This is better.
1: The new ice is better. The new ice that is smaller, nugget ice, is better. It's it's better. You guys are happy that Starbucks
5: is... 100%.
6: Yeah. (laughs) Sonic, you know, in the South... This is all they this sell all, right. with their lemonade yes. and strawberry Look, lemonade. This, let's
5: just cut to the chase. Yeah. This is serial killer ice, right? <laughs> yeah. This is happy ice, and we're missing two other kinds of ice. <laughs> oh, what are they? Okay, so you have the big giant blocks of ice that you get in your cocktail. Yeah, that, that's and that's those sexy. Are great. That's great. want that? Because it's not watering d- it's down, just your, drink. down it's your drink. Just it's your water it right? it down your drink. It's just you're happy, right? And mm-hmm. then like there's that block ice. Right, exactly. And then there's what I like to call doing too much ice, which is if you're on TikTok or Instagram, there's a whole trend right now, in particular, of people freezing things into their large blocks of ice. So people will take like a rose, they'll cut off right at the bud, they'll put the rose in the giant ice block, put water in it, freeze it, and then put it on display with their champagne or put it in their cocktail drinks. That is, that's again, doing like too it. much ice. That is what that ice is called. Oh Nobody should be doing that.
1: Got it, got it. So you guys this have is thought God's a lot ice. of uh, This is God's ice. The yes, nugget, the nugget ice, ice, finally, we've advanced <laughs> as a civilization enough, yes. you're saying, to have nugget ice. Yes. Yeah,
6: and if I had one recommendation for Bud Light,
1: yeah.
6: is package your Bud Light in this ice, and they'd Ooh. win back every voter.
1: Ooh. Look at every, uh, every conservative. But are you saying voter. to water down Bud Light? No, no.
6: Put your Bud Light in some pellet ice. Yep. And I think conservatives would and forget like all about And like controversy over. Episode. Right, yeah.
5: I mean, ice used to only be on the outside. And by the way, it's really only Americans who put it inside. Oh. And we are scorned for it all over the globe. But right. I don't care. Right. I, stand, I stand proudly.
1: No, yeah. nugget ice. you guys have thought a lot about this. I it's can an tell.
6: Important 100%. topic, Allison. I, when you go to Circle K now in the South, you have two options: you have this ice or you have the pellet ice. Mm-hmm. I, oh everybody gravitates towards the pellet ice.
1: Thank goodness you guys have cleared this up and Welcome. have educated me about this. I really appreciate you. Do we get being to
6: take here. this with us? You do, okay.
1: but not this take one. Take the nugget ice. Nobody no, no. wants no. No, you yeah, can get rid of have that garbage ice. That's, that's right. for the next hour. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll let these guys, the reporters (laughs) who don't know about it, have that kind of ice. Thank you, guys. Great to see you. Thank you. All right, coming up, some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the stories that they're working on for tomorrow. Little do they know what kind of ice we're about to give them. Mm -hmm. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi, Hi. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters here with me tonight. Harry Anton. Zayn Asher, Danny Freeman, and Omar Jimenez. Okay, the US has one week left to solve the debt limit crisis before facing default. Sources tell CNN, White House officials and GOP negotiators are getting closer to an agreement to raise the debt ceiling, and Zayn is on this story. Are we on the verge of a deal? I think that the major disaster that we were talking about on Tuesday
8: has more or less been averted for now. I'm somewhat optimistic based on what I'm hearing. I think I'm getting the impression that if McCarthy really wanted to make a deal at this point, he probably could. Um, So in terms of the contours of what we're hearing right now, uh, there is possibly a deal in the work to raise the debt ceiling for two years and issue spending caps for two years. So that's good news there. I think that my concern is even if they reach a deal, right, this is what I was talking to you about earlier in the week, even if they reach a deal, even if you have McCarthy and Biden sort of coming together and reach a deal, McCarthy still has to sell it, right? Mm. And that's the issue. He still has to sell it to the House Freedom Caucus. And there is a section of Republicans, a faction of Republicans that are going to condemn whatever deal that comes out. And so that's the issue. There's a belief that, of course, they need Democrats at this point to make this work. But I think what's good about this particular deal that's being talked about right now is that either side possibly can frame this as a political win, right? So Republicans can say, well, look, we actually, you know, cut spending quite significantly. And Democrats can say, oh, no, but we protected the worst of the spending cuts from actually happening. So both sides can frame it as a win. Um, So I'm cautiously optimistic. We're not out of the woods just yet, especially because of the timeline. And that's what I'm concerned about. Seven days, um, 72 hours, to review that lawmakers have, plus it's got to get through the House, plus it's got got to get through the Senate as well, President's desk. I'm concerned about the timeline, but I think that I'm far more optimistic now than I was,
1: say, yesterday. Okay. well, I'm less optimistic because of (laughs) what you just said. I am because I didn't know that he hadn't talked to the Freedom Caucus first and found out what they would agree to. Why are we going through this exercise in futility if he's going to make a deal with President Biden and then have to go sell it to the Freedom Caucus? Because they're the ones, as you know, Congressman Matt Gates is one of the people who said, like, I don't believe that. the the, the schedule and the debt limit. Yes,
8: I don't believe the schedule and the debt limit. And there it seems to be a group of Republicans who actually don't Either believe that a default would be that bad, or it's or it's grossly exaggerated, and that's that's the issue. And I think that that line of thinking is is foolish, right? A default um, for this country would be Armageddon. It would be absolutely catastrophic. I don't think that we're going to get there, though. I just don't believe we're going to get there. Well,
12: and even just being close, you know, I, I feel like we're already starting to see. You know, yeah, I, I agree that you know there's cautious optimism out there, um, but. On the other side of cautious optimism, I'm sure, is uh, reckless pessimism, <laughs> dread. Um, reckless dread. Uh, but, but even just being close to, to this deadline or this perceived deadline has already changed a few things or, or warnings yes, or, uh, from what you've seen, right?
8: Yeah, I mean, the move by Fitch um, in terms of issuing a warning, that was a bold move. Because when the S&P actually did downgrade uh, U.S. debt in 2011— that you know, they received backlash for that. Bold move by Fitch, certainly. I think it was necessary, though. I'm still looking at the markets, and I'm wondering why they're so muted. Why there's sort of no reaction from the markets in terms of this? I mean, this is significant. I think one of the issues is that this is the second time, right? So we've already experienced um, a downgrade, S and P downgrading U.S. debt. 10 12 years ago and so the second time around it's not a shocking and i think there's also this belief that listen maybe this warning by fitch will actually give lawmakers the nudge they need to reach an agreement um i don't necessarily know if if that's you know that's gonna end up happening but hey look they are Somewhat, I don't, I'm not going to say they're close, but closer than they were, let's say, a couple of days ago.
13: I, yeah. I think the reason why investors aren't necessarily worried is because it's the same old game all over again, right? right? right I mean, right. you know, yes, you mentioned the one time that there was the downgrade, but we've, you know, been at this we've done this. ceiling, no, limit we've done crisis, this. and, it, you know, oh, and it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. And then the last second, oh, no, we got it. Don't worry. We came to an agreement. It's all good. It's all chill. <laughs> and that's kind of like what it sounds, you know, yes, there can be the pessimism. That Allison has, but you know what I took from you was optimism, and of course, you know, yes, there maybe not everyone in the Freedom Caucus will, will go, up, you know, go ahead and um, agree to this. But the fact is, you can pass it with Democratic votes too, fine, right?
8: Fine, fine, and, and also, by the way, just to add to another point I was making earlier, you know, there's a big difference between a downgrade that is based on an actual default and a downgrade that is based on the risk of a default. And and that's the thing here. In 2011, the downgrade that we saw, which is obviously we got much closer to a potential default, we were like two two or three days out. Um, S&P, just in terms of stocks, the S&P 500 reacted quite sharply, down 6.5%. And it took the markets six months to come back. I don't think we're going to see that this time, though. I think that, you know, I mean, I actually thought that what we would see is a deal to make a deal. But it seems as though one of the good things and sort of silver lining all of this is that Biden is not going to have this hanging over his head during the elections, that this is a two year deal, which I think is fantastic just politically for for both sides, but especially Biden, obviously he's up for re-election. So I'm optimistic, but very, very cautiously.
3: Can I I ask, though, you keep saying seven days, right? That's calendar days. And in between, there's a holiday weekend (laughs) where (laughs) members... But they would be given 24 hours (laughs) notice to come back and vote. Right. But that seems to suggest that, I mean, we're going to be seeing members, right, in theory, in their home districts, you know, grilling burgers and flipping hot dogs or the other way around. I mean, that seems like there is or isn't urgency in your mind. I mean, I think that,
8: yes, there is urgency, absolutely. But I think that the risk of a default in this country would be so catastrophic. You think about what it would mean for the U.S. economy, what it would mean, not just, I mean, obviously, we've spoken about, you know, payments not being sent out on time, Social Security payments not being sent out on time, um, service members not being paid. Obviously, that's a nightmare. But on top of that, bondholders not being paid would be catastrophic for global financial markets. Um, you know, by some calculations, if it is a protracted default, uh, the stock market will leave us about 50 percent of its value. And on top of that, eight million more Americans could be out of a job. So I think that even though there is a faction of Republicans that seem somewhat complacent, you know, the Matt Gaetzes of this world who don't necessarily believe that, who believe that Janet Yellen should show her work, <laughs> um, I do think that there are a lot of sensible people out there who want to avoid and who don't want to stick around to find out what a default actually looks like. But
1: what happened to the sticking points
8: that were the major obstacles? Yes, yeah, so, so the so work requirements. The work requirements. So yeah. what's ha- what have they decided? Work requirements is still a big sticking point. So that is still a point of contention. I mean, my thing is that Democrats are probably not going to budge on that because obviously they've budged in terms of spending caps. Um, so it will be a sticking point. But I still think there's going to be some movement to come together. Also, energy permit reform is also another sticking point as well. Um, so there are still major sticking points. Don't get me wrong. I, we're not out of the words, but I think that we're moving closer. And I just don't believe, I think McCarthy is sensible. I don't believe he's going to let this happen. Okay,
1: saying thank you very much. Really appreciate your optimism and you explain all of this. Is, I just,
8: I just, we need
12: optimism, yeah. though, you know? Yeah, you gotta have some
1: optimism. We're not out of
8: the woods. Yeah, you know,
12: there we go. I not um, you know, I know, boo. but yes.
1: Tomorrow night like, she's gonna be like, we don't have a deal. Uh, thank you for telling this us time next where week, we, Yes, yes <laughs> where we are right now. Thank you. All right, CNN has obtained a copy of the Burn After Reading note that Brian Laundrie's mother wrote him. So we're going to tell you what's in it, and why it's part of this lawsuit by Gabby Petito's parents. CNN has a copy of the burn after reading note that Brian Laundry's mother says she wrote to him before. Gabby Petito's death in 2021. The letter is at the center of a lawsuit brought by Petito's parents against Laundrie's parents. Omar Jimenez is on this story. Okay, so Omar, tell us about this letter. What's in it?
12: All right, so let me, let me just start back up, just give people a refresher of the timeline. So this goes back to summer 2021. Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie go on a road trip across the country. Uh, late August, she's there on the Grand Tetons. Early September, he comes back, goes on a camping trip with his family. She doesn't. So mid-September, she's reported missing. He's reported missing not long after that. Her body is found about a week later. His is found about a month later. And authorities say that this letter was found in a backpack near his body in October 2021. So the critical portions of this letter. I want to show uh, a critical portion of that that they were listing when they put this out. So you can see some of the handwriting there. But it basically says, if you're in jail, and this is from the mother... To Brian Laundrie, if you're in jail, I will bake a cake with a file in it. If you need to dispose of a body, I will show up with a shovel and garbage bags. If you fly to the moon, I will be watching the skies for your reentry. If you say you hate my guts, I'll get new guts. Now, this is an undated letter, okay? But Roberta Laundrie, the, the mom, says that this letter was written before Gabby Petito had disappeared, before their trip and in an attempt to repair a relationship with her son. Now, the Petito family looks at this letter and sees those lines and says, no, 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 this is proof that you were trying to send a message to your son that you would be there to help dispose of our daughter's body. And so that's why they wanted to get the letter admitted into this lawsuit to bolster their case, and it is why the Laundry family, understandably, is saying, no, 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 no. That's not what we were trying to say in this particular letter.
1: Right. So the question is, is this just a love letter from a mother to a son expressing the depth of her love to him, or is she trying offering to be an accomplice? In yeah. a- we all have thoughts on that. Well, <laughs> yeah. and I was going
12: to say, there, there's another aspect of it, <clears> too, <throat> was that the letter was inside an envelope that said, burn after reading. Ah. And so, okay, same deal. Tito family looks at that and says, burn after reading? What? What suspicious... Writings are in this envelope that requires burning. Laundry family says, wait, this is actually a bit of an inside joke between the mother, the son, Brian Laundrie, and Gabby Petito playing on a book called Burn After Writing, where you essentially look at questions that are in this book and you write down your answers meant to sort of bolster discussion, so to speak. But again, another suspicious flag for the Petito family – That said, to give a little bit more context on this letter, I want to read another part of this letter. Uh, There's the burn after reading part that was on the uh, outside of the envelope. Uh, Another part of the letter says, I just want you to remember I will always love you and I know you will always love me. You are my boy. Nothing can make me stop loving you. Nothing will or could ever divide us no matter what we do or where we go or what we say. We will always love each other. And so again, the laundry family is like, if you look at the whole letter it's much more of a love letter trying to repair. But again, the, the Petito family is looking at the specific passage and saying, wait a second, this is too much of a coincidence.
8: And the key question is, when was that letter written? Exactly. Was it before or after Petito's death? Exactly. And, and how do we find that out?
12: Well, and that's that's a big dispute. So obviously it's undated right now. The letter, as we understand from, from court officials, was found in a backpack that Brian Laundrie had within, uh, near his body in October 2021. But his mother says that that letter was written prior to that because she claims she was questioned by the FBI about that letter before his body was actually found. And so while that might not necessarily clear up the contents of the letter, it does give a little bit more, if you go by her reasoning, a little more clarity to the argument that this wasn't a big conspiracy once the, once the, once the body was, was...
1: So hold on, let me understand the timeline. So the FBI can confirm that, right? So the F- when does she say the FBI asked her about this letter?
12: She just says the FBI asked her about this letter before her son's body was found.
1: But do we have confirmation from the FBI about that?
12: Uh, we do not. We just have what's been going on in court, and so and this is something I should say too that this is what the mother has claimed, um, and that. At this point, they are sort of moving towards, their filing motions and sort of moving towards a trial where I can imagine if this actually gets to witnesses appearing on the stand, they'd put the FBI on the stand and say, when did you talk to uh, this mother about the letter? Because again, as you mentioned, Zane, the undated part of this is what makes the whole difference here. Mm-hmm. She claims she wrote it well before the trip, but if it turns out it was at some point after her disappearance, then that becomes the issue. And I should say the reason they're filing this lawsuit, the Petito family, is because they claimed that the that the laundry family was essentially uh, causing them undue emotion or unwanted emotional damage, outrageous actually is the word that they use, emotional damage, by putting out a statement in mid-September saying, oh, we hope that Petito's body is found and we hope the search is successful when the petito family is accusing them of already having knowledge that the bod- that there was a body to be found and that they were allegedly helping their son obscure that hence the the cake or the you know the file and the
13: cake and otherwise I, I, you know it was so funny i was having a conversation with my mother earlier today and there was a point in which she sort of just paused in the conversation she says i love you and i was like i know and she just goes no, I really do love you. I want you to know that.
8: that. so sweet.
13: And <laughs> like, I love that. she's a very sweet, kind woman, very <laughs> smart, too, far smarter than I am. <laughs> and, you know, I just compare that. I can't imagine her saying I would file, you know, bring a file, sneak it into a cake. She loves me a lot. But that type of language is just, if nothing else, it, it, to me, it strikes me as like, Odd language of a relationship that's in a weird place. I don't know in terms of guilt or anything like that. For sure, and that's and that's what the laundry mother has has
12: argued all along. That said, that their relationship was strained, even when Brian Laundry came back from from the trip in the Tetons, and the family goes on a camping trip. They say that they never were told about any of this. That they never knew anything that went down in the Tetons. And again, that is part of why the Petito family is so suspicious here because there was contact with the family and Brian Laundrie after their daughter's body was left in Wyoming. And here the family is defending themselves, saying we did not know anything about it. This letter comes out. The date of it obviously becomes very crucial. And you see where the Petito family's case is sort of coming together and at least stacking up Uh, trying to stack up against that of the laundries.
3: Can I just ask, you know, I know we were talking about this a little bit before the break, Omar, but I just wanted your perspective on, you know, again, we're talking about this case and obviously there are a lot of strange and new and continual revelations that come out in it, but, you know, some of it feels, I feel like voyeuristic at times and and there are a lot of people who go missing uh, and we don't talk about them. I was just wondering if you could talk to that.
12: 100%. I mean, you, you could have you could have a whole class on why certain cases go viral and capture the attention of a country versus others. Some would say, oh, it, it, it has to be an attractive woman, and now everybody. Some would say it has to be an attractive white woman, and then people will will jump on it. When the reality is, I mean, we do have hundreds of thousands of missing unidentified cases that happen yearly across the United States, and none of them, if few get the attention that this case got. And the attention that was brought to this case helped crack this case sooner. I don't want to say that they wouldn't have cracked it, but literally a a YouTuber happened to drive by, happened to have his camera rolling on his van, happened to drive by the van, their van, in the Tetons. And because he knew about the case, went back and looked through his footage and was like, oh my God, there's the van. And because of that, likely, the search for investigators really narrowed as opposed to trying to search across the vast national park that is the Grand Teton. So you see that these the involvement of the public makes a difference. You know, the involvement of the public makes a difference. Mm. Shout out, America's Most Wanted. <laughs> but... but uh, but again, it's 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 the type of attention that so many other cases, I think, wish they would have. Yeah. Because while the country may not be fascinated with these cases, at the core of these cases are family members and friends who can't find their loved ones and don't know what happened to them.
1: Yeah, such a great point. I would also say they, the couple, also shot a lot of video. They did, Of yes. themselves. Yes. And so that... When you are on a TV news network also is an element that you need for the story to keep going. You know, it helps yeah. to have that. It gives in people
12: something to, to interact with. Yes. To,
1: yeah. And yeah, to exactly. look out for. And yep. so all, in addition to all the things that you just mentioned. All right, well, thanks for the update on that. Really interesting. Um, OK, so gun legislation just cleared a major hurdle in Pennsylvania. And Danny is on this developing story. We'll tell you all about it Next. After more than a decade of Republicans controlling the Pennsylvania State House, the now democratically controlled body just passed two gun safety measures this week. Danny is reporting on this story. So, Danny, what's in these measures?
3: Yeah, it's very interesting. And, you know, the reason I wanted to bring this up is because we've been talking a little bit about how just recently the Democrats took over the Pennsylvania State House for the first time in, you know, like you said, over a decade. Uh, and. We're seeing what's now coming because of that. So two bills passed. Uh, Let's take a look at the first one. The first one is about universal background checks. Uh, And basically what is in this particular law is, you can see right here, these background checks will basically mean that uh, all firearms purchased, regardless of size, you will have to get a background check. Basically, the law right now on the books in Pennsylvania is any handguns or smaller-sized, barrel-sized guns, you have to have a background check. But anything over that, larger shotguns, rifles, you don't. And this also applies to licensed uh, retailers, private transactions, and gun shows. So a lot of Democrats were very excited at the prospect of closing what you hear often, this gun show loophole. So that's the first one that passed. And then there was a second bill that passed, which was on red flag laws. These are laws that a lot of folks in the gun control community have been talking about for a while. They're known as technically extreme risk protection orders. Uh, And basically this If this were to be enacted, family members or loved ones of people who are close to them, they could call law enforcement and say, or rather they could ask a judge to hold a hearing to disarm someone if they think that they're in a moment of crisis. And we've seen a lot of different states enact and start to uh, bring up those laws, uh, you know, all over the country. So those are the two laws that we are talking about this week. Again, something that would not have been thought to be possible in Pennsylvania, you know, Five ten 10 years ago.
1: And did they have bipartisan support?
3: Yeah, so this is interesting. So both of these two, so I should say to start, there were four laws in total, four sort of gun regulation laws that were brought forward. These two passed, one failed and another one didn't get brought up on two different subjects, but all in this uh, vein. The two that did pass though, did pass in bipartisan Fashion, But let let me just be clear when I say bipartisan, and just this emphasizes how close the state houses in Pennsylvania right now. uh, The background checks passed 109 to 92. Okay, so they got a few more Republicans to jump over in there. The red flag laws passed 102 to 99. Only two Republicans crossed over. And that third bill that failed when it came up for a vote earlier this week failed 101 to 100. So these are the margins yeah. that are being played with right now in the Pennsylvania State House of Representatives.
13: I, I find it interesting, you know, we had a Tim Walz on our network earlier this evening, the governor of Minnesota, uh, also obviously have Gretchen Whitmer uh, in Michigan and basically states in which democratic rule has finally come to basically the entire state where we hadn't seen it for a while. And it does seem on the state level in sort of what I would call the Great Lake battleground states Mm -hmm. that all of a sudden Democratic priorities are getting passed, which is just such a difference from what I've almost felt over the last decade, where it was Republicans basically passing laws on the state level while federal government was kind of standing still. It seems like Democrats are finally playing and in some cases winning at the quote unquote Republican game.
3: Absolutely. And that's why, again, I think this is pretty significant. And as you said, part of a trend that we're seeing in this area of the country Uh, Josh Shapiro, Democratic governor, newly elected in Pennsylvania as well. He says, I'm going to sign these two bills. This is a great moment. But of course, and there is always a but uh, in these dialogues, there is still a intensely Republican state Senate that these laws would have to clear uh, if they have a hope of getting to the governor's desk and have a hope of actually becoming law. So in other uh, states where Democrats have taken the entire uh, state legislature in Pennsylvania. It's still a divided government. But listen, a lot of gun advocates and Democratic lawmakers who have been uh, very happy and excited over the past couple of days that they finally got some gun legislation passed through one of their legislative bodies, they're saying, you know, we're going to fight. And if we were able to make it bipartisan here, maybe there's hope in the state Senate.
12: Well, And so, you know, if it, it goes to the to the GOP-controlled Senate, it does... Do aspect are there aspects of this that that survive, or is it truly just a it's it's dead on arrival, and and we're happy that we that we've made some progress? Because I mean, in in Minnesota, it came down to really just one seat, one seat, mm-hmm. and uh, and then they were able to pass essentially all these sweeping Democratic priorities. But here, yeah, what what is what is the realistic end goal?
3: I think here? that I think that is a good question. Um, and let me see if I can explain it to you this way. I, I think that what we saw here were Republicans, in some cases, actually trying to play ball a little bit. And maybe it was, if we see the writing on the wall, this will pass because we don't have a majority. Then maybe we'll try to get things in that are of you know note to us. So the one thing that uh, came up in these two particular laws, in the background check laws, uh, the, uh, some of the Republicans in the state house actually were able to get in a provision that said, okay, you know, we may be more inclined to sign on to this, but what has to be in there is. If you are an undocumented person trying to purchase a gun, the gun dealer has to report you to ICE. Now, some of the Democrats bristled at that a little bit, uh, but other advocates were saying, "Listen, this—it's already illegal for an undocumented person to purchase a gun, so that's not okay. If that has to be the extra clause to get this across the finish line, that's okay in our book." So, I think you know there may be some more wiggle room than perhaps otherwise. uh, we might have thought. But I should say, I mean, the Pennsylvania House GOP, as a caucus, still said, I mean, these laws are criminalizing good, hardworking Second Amendment gun owners. Uh, they're penalizing them. So the, the, the main line is still opposition.
8: Here. So let me ask you this. When it comes to these red flag, red flag laws, how much do you think these red flag laws would actually make a difference when it comes to really reducing gun crime and mass shootings, for example— in the United States, obviously I'm from the UK and we are the kings and queens of gun control. Um, (laughs) To get a gun in the UK, I mean, do you guys know what it takes to get a gun in the UK? To buy one, a police officer will come to your house, sit down, interview you, you have to show the officer why you want a gun. So you have to prove why you need a gun. So if you're, let's say, if you love hunting, for example, you need to have documented photographs of you with your grandfather hunting. And the second thing is you have to prove that you are not a threat to the wider society. And that means police officers will interview your parents. They will interview your friends, your neighbors as well. They will go to your doctor. I mean, obviously, your doctor can't disclose any sort of personal information about your health, but they will go to your doctor and sort of try to weed out information about... You know, whether or, or not you've, you, you know, you're depressed or whether or not you have sort of certain mental health issues. And they are very, very strict. And that is what's been, I think, and I'm obviously biased because I'm from there, probably the most effective thing at preventing a mass shooting. And these laws were really strengthened after we had Dunblane, which is the British
1: version of Sandy Hook. So that was in the late 90s. Well, obviously something is working because, right. you know, as we have reported millions of times, that is not a country that has... No. the epidemic no. of mass shootings that we no. have. No. That's fascinating to hear what they have to go through.
3: Yeah, and to be clear, that is very different from <laughs> right. <and> Pennsylvania. Just <laughs> yeah. almost yeah. night, and day, it's two different planets. No,
8: um, but everybody's on the same page. And well, that's the thing. There's, right. there's no NRA, right? So everybody's on the same page. And right after Dunblane, which is, I think, about 16, 16 kids were murdered in that school shooting. Um, and everybody was like, we need to change these laws right now. So there wasn't this sort of political division. And I think that makes a the difference.
3: Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll say two things. First is that the, the, the gun law that failed um, in Pennsylvania, it was about having to report lost or stolen guns. So if you lose your gun, the law would have said you have to report it stolen or lost within 72 hours. And if you don't, you'll face a penalty. And uh, the GOP in Pennsylvania said this is this is punishing folks who have not, in their eyes, done anything wrong. You lose your gun, you're going to stall, and you didn't do anything wrong, so why should I then get penalized for that? So, I mean, you know, it, it, it's challenging. I mean, there are folks who, again, that Second Amendment is real and strong and yeah. don't... I mean, in the UK, it's a privilege to own a gun. It's not a right. Right. It's not protected in any way, shape, or form. But I want to answer your question about the red flag law specifically, because this the discussion about though, that law in Pennsylvania, uh, I think one of the reasons that it passed is because it was framed not really around mass shootings. It was not framed so much around crime specifically. That particular law was framed around uh, suicide. And Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, the lawmakers who advocated for it said, one in particular who actually sponsored the bill said, if this law were in uh, place when my dad took his life, I -hmm. I think we could have saved his life. Uh, The Republicans, they got up and said, listen, We believe mental health is a a problem and and an issue that we need to address. We just don't think that's the way. But I think that's the way that Democrats were able to pass that particular law.
1: Really interesting. Please keep us posted on what happens in the Senate. You got it. Really fascinating. All right. Meanwhile, America is getting older with more adults over 65 and fewer children under the age of five. Harry's going to explain why, what this means for the culture and the country and everything
0: going forward. (laughs)
1: America is getting older. The Census Bureau says the U.S. population has gotten older in the past 20 years. You'd think that we are getting older every year. (laughs) Harry Anton has the numbers, and he's going to explain just how much older we are getting. Harry, explain.
13: You know, I'll tell you, I've tried as hard as I can, but I've never managed to become younger. I just, every single second, it seems like time goes forward. Yeah. Uh, But look, I mean, the population that's age 65 or older compared now or 19, or compared 2020 to where we were in 1920, look at this, 56 million people in the United States that are age 65 or older in 2020. It was just 5 million in 1920. Up 10-fold uh, the overall population's really only up about threefold, but it's not just over the last century, it's over the last 10 years where the age 65 plus population has boomed. Look at this. Up 16 million since 2010. Compare that to 0 to 9 years old. That population's actually shrunk. So, it's not just that that everyone's you, you know we're just growing population. No, it's the older part of the population that's really growing while the younger people are, in fact, shrinking. One little last nugget I'll point out, though. If you want to find a place with some young folks, you know where you should go? Go out west. Go to Utah. That is, in fact, the youngest state by median age, just 31.3. If you want to visit some old folks, go up to (laughs) New England. Maine is the oldest state in the country with a median age of 45.1. So (laughs) north and east, old, south and west. What about other countries?
1: How do we compare average age to other countries?
13: Yeah, so, uh, you know, even though we are getting older, I should point out that the percentage of the population that's age 65 or older is still relatively small here compared to other countries. If you look at the stats, what you see is that the USA, about 17 percent is the uh, share of the population that is age 65 plus. We're not anywhere near Japan, 29 percent. Italy, twenty three percent; Greece, twenty two percent. So, yeah, we're getting older, but the fact is, when you put us in a global look, we're still a fairly young country. And I'd like to say that even the oldest amongst us still feel young. <laughs> Younger,
12: young yeah, yes. I knew you were going to do that. I feel like uh, so. My my mind immediately goes to, aside from having collectively earlier bedtimes <laughs> with this aging population, like is that necessarily? a bad thing? Does that show that our healthcare system, especially when you showed compared to 1920, you know, does that show that we are living more? There's more old people because we are in theory, taking care of old people better? I, yeah, or? I think
9: it's a
13: great question. I think, one, it does show how much better health care outcomes have come, become, right? You know, just just getting past childbirth, which used to be a very dangerous affair. Obviously, we still have, we still have some kids who die during childbirth, but the fact is most of us make it past that point. Uh, we have much better health outcomes for, you know, cancer, heart disease, uh, things that would kill us much earlier on these days don't necessarily do that. So that's the good news. I think the bad news is, you know, obviously the way a society keeps functioning is if you have more kids. And obviously the number of kids we're having has shrunk. And that can lead to some bad outcomes, right? You know, our Social Security system (laughs) is very keen on having young people pay in so that it can support the older folks. Also, as we're aging, obviously, there's some age-related illnesses, you know, such as Alzheimer's, uh, that will grow in proportion. And will we have the necessary people within the population to be able to take care of them? Uh, So, you know, we have some stuff up there on the screen right now. You know, there's both good and there's bad. I'd like to think, though, it's overall a better thing than not. Thank Um, you.
8: but but seriously, I think— Thank you for saying that, because I yeah. think we, we do need some perspective on this. And listen, I fully respect the fiscal challenges, right, when it comes to Social Security payments, et cetera, and I understand that it's financial, you know, financial burden. I don't want to say burden, but you, you get what I'm saying. Um, but I'm, my family's originally from Nigeria, where the life expectancy is 50. 50! Mm-hmm. And by the way, when my parents left Nigeria back in the 1970s, it was 38. Mm-hmm. That is the medium age right now in the United States. So, come on. I mean, I respect fully the fiscal challenges, but the fact that people in the United States are living longer, that is a great problem to have, don't you think?
3: Yeah. I do, yeah. but can, can I ask the question? You know, as, as, as a millennial sitting here, is it all our fault that we're not having enough babies? Is that part of what is <laughs> yeah, going on? Honest, yeah. We work too hard, yeah. that's why. <laughs> <laughs> right, sounds like that. I mean, that's true. True.
12: Because- aren't millennials having babies later? You know, is, is right. that, I mean, that's the trend that each generation, at least the past two, that that we have had babies later
13: on in life, which in theory would mean you would have fewer babies in total. Uh, And and the other thing I'll note is we go through cycles, right? You know, we had a baby boom after the Second World War. And and this
1: is the baby boom. This is the demographic that's gotten older that's so much. That's the baby boom. That's
13: exactly right. It's these people who are growing into the age of 65 and older. So, look, just because we have a pattern right now where perhaps we're not having as much kids... Who knows what might happen 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line? It's hard enough to predict an election a year and a half out. The idea of predicting population trends 30, 40 years down the line, that really scares me.
1: When we start breeding with robots because of AI, <laughs> obviously everything's <laughs> going to change. So don't I, worry about thank it. Goodness. I was going to say, we <laughs> should <laughs> probably, <laughs> yeah.
12: we should so, probably yeah. track it to this pandemic that yeah. happened when everyone was uh, all together. Mm-hmm. That's, all, all. That's where I'm going to leave great. it. Excellent. But we can, we can track the trends from there. <laughs>
1: great point. Thank you very much <laughs> for explaining you. all of that. Okay, up next, on The Lookout... Our reporters tell us what stories they're looking out for on the horizon. And we're back with our fantastic panel of reporters to tell us what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call it On the Lookout. Okay, Dane, what do you keep an eye on? Turkish elections this Sunday, the runoff. And it is
8: pivotal because we'll see whether Erdogan is ousted or not. I think he's going to stay... But that economy has been through so much. There's been a huge amount of inflation. He has not raised interest rates, which is, you know, a lot of people would say that is a disastrous move. Um, And he's tried to have it both ways with NATO and Vladimir Putin as well. So we'll see
1: what happens. Okay, fantastic. Uh, Okay, Harry, go. Uh,
13: So, you know, I'm the neighborhood shark reporter. (laughs) Uh, We uh, heard an unfortunate case that uh, off the uh, Turks and Caicos, a, a tourist had a limb actually bitten off by a shark. Uh, That's the bad news. But I continue to emphasize that very few people are killed by sharks every year, well less than 100. So you'll hear these stories throughout the summer. Look, unfortunate things happen. But going in the ocean, I'd be much more worried about jellyfish. Than a shark. I
1: attack. feel like you're giving us a mixed message. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. That's That's right. very reassuring. You led with a tourist having a limb bitten off, but then you told us not to worry.
13: I like to sensationalize at the top and then bring truth and realism <laughs> okay. in at the end. And then get Perfect. me data on alligators. I'm going to get you that data. Yeah. Don't worry, Omar. That's what <laughs> I'm
1: worried about. Okay, Omar.
12: Uh, so I'm looking at a case out of Mississippi. This was uh, a mother who called the police Uh, Because the father of one of her children was was behaving, in her eyes, uh, angrily. And so she asked her 11-year-old son to call the police. And when the police got there, the police shot the 11-year-old boy. Now, the good news is he is going to be okay. But lawyers are saying, we called you for a grown man and you shot uh, an 11-year-old who is under 5 feet tall. So there's no way you could have mistaken that in the attorney's eyes. So I'll be watching to see if this officer is charged, fired, any sort of discipline as this case moves forward.
3: Okay. Danny. Okay. This Sunday night, mm-hmm. the series, not season, the series finale of Succession mm-hmm. will be playing Ooh. on HBO. We will finally find out, we hope, what happens to the Roy family and the Waystar Roy Company, Royco company. No spoilers, please. No spoilers, Thank but you. I'll tell you. I am always behind on television shows. Me too. So I spent the past month or so catching up on all four seasons just to be ready for. <laughs> I'm on season wow. one,
8: episode two. Okay, so it's no spoilers. You're on this season, you episode two. Season days. one, episode <laughs> two.
1: I just
3: it. Wow.
8: Where have
1: I been?
3: It's great. A few days. It's worth it. <laughs> yeah. And I am extremely excited to see how this entire series. But you know
1: what, Danny? I'm a little sad that it's ending. I know, Like I know, You get too. attached. Even though these are totally, like, repulsive people, I mean, characters,
3: I'm sad, I, I will miss them. I know, you know? But yeah. you got you to gotta break some Gregs if you want to make an out. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. yeah you break True some words, Greggs. never spoken. Thank
1: you for that. Thanks so much, all of you. Great no, no, to no, have no, you no, here. No, 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 no. All right, tomorrow on CNN This Morning, a new use for artificial intelligence, how AI may have just discovered a new antibiotic to treat a dangerous superbug.